Well, if you have a Bible, uh, join me in Hebrews chapter 13, uh, if you would. This is the first week of a brand new sermon series called What Happens When We Worship. I love starting new sermon series. I love starting new things in general. I'm not as good at finishing uh, the things that I start, I'm, I'm told on occasion. Uh, but we are going to finish this sermon. It's only seven weeks, and um, you know, unless the Lord Jesus comes, we're going to get to the end of it. And, and I think it's going to be helpful for us. I hope it is. I hope it's an encouragement for us. If you're new with us, what we tend to do is work through uh, books of the Bible section by section, uh, sometimes verse by verse, depending on the type of biblical literature that we're in. And we do that so that we can keep the text in the context, and so we don't pull out uh, any particular verses or any part of the Bible out of context and then make it mean something that it was never intended to do. And so about 90% of the time, we're working our way through a book of the Bible. We just finished up uh, 13 weeks in First John, and, and we're going to get into Job uh, toward the beginning, at the beginning of this next year, calendar year, which I'm really excited about and started a little bit of prep on that um, already. But every once in a while, we, we take a break for four, five, six weeks, whatever it is, and, and we do a, a series. Now, we're still in the Bible. We're still working our way through passages and sections of the Bible, but we consider a particular uh, topic, and that's what we're going to be doing over uh, the, next, the next few weeks. I'm not much of a uh, stats guy. I don't, I don't, give, I don't feed you uh, statistics uh, every week for a couple reasons. One, I'm not a statistician uh, by training, and so I don't want to get in over my head. But also because stats can be manipulated, and you, you can make stats, you know, uh, you can use them certainly uh, in your favor. Um, but sometimes statistics help us to make sense of or to understand what we see with our eyes. And what we've been seeing with our eyes over the last couple of years at least is that church attendance is down across the country uh, markedly. According to some pretty reliable studies, church attendance has sharply declined every year for the past 10 years. So it's gone down every year for the past 10 years. And most precipitously, uh, at the point of COVID, according to the Barna Group, one in three practicing Christians dropped out of church completely during COVID-19. Some have not yet returned. And that's, I mean, that's terribly sad, isn't it? That, that, that grieves me and grieves us uh, as elders and as Christians. But the one thing that really gets me the most, I think that's most surprising to me, is that most people aren't dropping out of church altogether they're just attending much less frequently. And so the average church member attends church or you know, gathers with God's people on the Lord's Day something like 1.9 weeks per month. So 1.9 weeks per month, that, as you know, is, is less than half of the time. Really amounts to 23 weeks a year. So the average church member attends church church, so to speak, gathers with God's people 1.9 weeks uh, out of the month. Tom Rayner, who does a lot of research, says that the once-a-month churchgoer is the fastest-growing segment of church life. Now, praise God, that doesn't describe uh, most of you. Most of you have a, a much more uh, regular or faithful pattern in your participation in the life of the church and, and, and in worship. And this sermon, by the way, this whole series is not about Anybody, I don't have anybody in mind. It's, it's not, certainly not about fall break. I mean, if you got away for a couple weeks for fall break, I'm, I'm thrilled by that. That's great. I know some of you have jobs that are so stressful and so intense that 
But you need that fall break in order to maintain your sanity. So it's not about, uh, it's not about fall break again. I'm thrilled that we're able to, to do that. But this is uh, sort of a, we're widening out, looking at the big C church, and we're trying to see what some of these trends are. Then maybe more importantly, we want to address those biblically. So it's not going to be me saying, why aren't you in church more? Or you should be in church more, although you know, there's probably a place for that. Uh, at times, but I want to look at it differently. I want to look at what we're missing out on when we fail to gather with God's people on the Lord's Day. So we think about gathering with God's people for worship. You know, we, we tend to think, we most often think about what we come to do for God. You know, we come to praise Him and to, to, to sing about Him and to give to Him and and serve other people, what we do for other people. And those are all good things. Those are all very important things. But even more important than that is what God does for us and in us when we gather together as His people. So it's more important about what God is doing than even what we are doing when we gather. We talk a lot about you know, coming to church and we talk about doing so to give rather than receive. And I know where that's coming from. And I, and I think that's, you know, there's some, you know, there's some merit to that. But the reality is when we gather together and worship God, God actually does something unique and supernatural in our gatherings. So something unique happens, some things that are unique happen when we gather that don't happen at any other time in our lives. And we miss out on those things if we don't gather together. So, so each week of this series will be a question and a single answer as we look at the different elements of our worship gathering. For example, what happens next week? What happens when we gather? What supernatural event happens when we gather? And then what happens when we feast? What happens when we give? What are those... What does God do through those ancient and commanded practices? So that's kind of the way the series will go. It's kind of an outline, uh, so to speak. But this morning, before we get into some of those individual elements, I want to look at, from the Scriptures, what is worship? I mean, what, what is this practice of worship? And I want to give you four aspects of biblical worship. So, again, we're going to be in Hebrews 13. I'm going to focus most of our time on verses 15 and 16, but just so we get an idea of, of again, speaking of context of what's going on, let me read verses 7 through 16. Here reads the word of the Lord. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same today, yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited from uh, those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. 
Do not neglect to do good and to share with what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So the letter of Hebrews, we often talk about it as an epistle, which is just another word for letter, is really a written sermon. It's the only New Testament uh, document that we have that is widely regarded as a specific sermon. And it was delivered or, or preached to a church that the author or the preacher knew really well. So the preacher of Hebrews knew his audience uh, really well. Now, we don't know who the preacher was. Some say uh, it was the Apostle Paul. We have some who, who've said that over the years. But the, the problem with that is the writing style is so vastly different than anything else that we have by the Apostle Paul, um, and plus his name's not on it, so it's probably not the Apostle Paul. Um, Tertullian, the early church father, suggested that it was Barnabas, you know, Paul's uh, travel companion for some of his journeys. Uh, they, Tertullian said it was probably Barnabas who wrote Hebrews or preached Hebrews. He, he has no idea. Uh, we don't know. Um, 1,400 years later, Martin Luther said that it was most likely Apollos. Remember Apollos, the gifted orator and speaker that uh, attracted such a, a following. Luther said that the language seems to suit that of a great orator, and, and of course it does. Others said Silas of Paul and Silas fame. We don't really know who it was. Now, what we do know is quite a bit about the audience because that's all revealed in the actual text of the sermon. They were mostly Jewish Christians. So I say mostly because there were, it appears, some who were not believers who had determined to gather with the believing assembly. Uh, but having said that, Hebrews is not an evangelistic sermon like so many we see in Acts that were delivered to you know, members of pagan cities, uh, but rather a sermon to largely the saints. In fact, Hebrews is the only inspired example of preaching to an established church. And what, it is, what is it? It's actually essentially an exposition of Psalm 110 with some other Old Testament uh, references that are definitely... Uh, interspersed in there. So it's written to a mostly Jewish audience. They were theologically mature, immature, rather, generally speaking. In fact, the writer says, by this time, you should be teachers. In other words, you should be the ones out teaching and, and informing and educating and encouraging other believers. But I've got to go back. I've got to circle back and go over the elementary things with you. So they were largely theologically immature. They were persecuted, for sure. We know that. First century is well known for his persecution, uh, the Roman emperor Claudius, and then later, of course, Nero, the madman. If you've read any history, you know uh, some of his exploits. And the other thing we know about them is they were, they were near apostasy, which means they were, some of them were on the verge of practically turning away from the faith, which would have been an indication that they were never of the faith, never in Christ uh, to begin with. So basically, many of the earliest Jews early Jewish Christians were slipping back into the rites and rituals of Judaism. In order to blend in, in order to escape increasing persecution, um, this sermon then is a discourse on the sufficiency of Jesus, the beauty and the greatness of Jesus, who's far better than all the things of the old covenant, all the types and shadows, and it's also an exhortation for those persecuted believers to continue in the grace of Jesus Christ. So there were some of these Christians who had been drawn away by 
strange teaching. In other words, if you eat certain things or you adhere to certain ceremonial rituals or ceremonial cleansings or whatever it is, then you could earn a spot in God's favor. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying, no, these foods, these ceremonies, they have no benefit for you spiritually. The strength to persevere in the faith, to live with joy, to endure suffering actually comes from, and only from, the grace of God in Jesus Christ. The gospel itself, not all of these additions. He goes on to say that the former sacrifice, which was made at the altar of the Old Covenant, has been replaced by the sacrifice of Christ, who went outside the gate, outside the camp, and embraced the reproach that would be an integral part of his sacrifice. And then the writer of Hebrews says in verse 13, Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Now, you may read that, and you might rightly ask the question, what's the deal with inside the camp? And outside the camp, like what, what is this all about? Well, the, the paragraph that the, the writer of Hebrews appeals to here actually goes back to the book of Exodus and the story of Moses and the Ten Commandments. You, you may recall that Moses is at the mountain with God, and in order to meet with God, he left the people of Israel at the bottom of the mountain where they were encamped, and God had given Moses the two tablets containing the ten words of the Ten Commandments. And as he was coming down the mountain, Exodus 33 tells us, Now Moses took the tent and pitched it outside the camp, far off from camp. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the, camp, to the tent, which was outside the camp. So for Moses, outside the camp was actually a real place. It was a literal place. There was a camp. And this is a tent outside the camp. Now, what the writer of Hebrews, though, is using this as a metaphor or for a reference as to where we encounter Jesus. It's a reference to the cross of Christ, Golgotha. The hill on which, on which Jesus was crucified was outside the gates of Jerusalem. Remember that hymn we sing, that old rugged cross, right? Where was it? On a hill far away. Uh, because Jesus was so despised and hated, he was cast out of the city gates. New Testament scholar Richard Phillips writes, Outside the gate, Jesus suffered and died. In that separation, a principle is established for all who would come to God through him. Outside the camp is where we go to find the grace of God, for that is where the cross was raised, where God meets with us to forgive our sins and to accept us in the righteousness of the Son whom the world despised. So outside the camp is where we go to identify with Jesus. Outside the camp is where we go to bear the reproach, you know, the condemnation, the, the, to be written off like Jesus was. Outside the camp is where we go to meet God. Outside the camp is where we confess Christ as Lord and we praise Him that his sacrifice on the cross was enough to cover our sins. Outside the camp is where we put an end to our own self-reliance, our own self-righteousness, and our own attempts to save ourselves. Inside the camp, by contrast, represents the place where every other philosophy, every other, quote, way of salvation Every worldly approach to finding God and gaining His acceptance reigns. For the Jews of the first century, 
The way to God and his acceptance was found in strange teachings concerning, again, foods and rituals and rites and refraining from certain things and so on. For us, I wonder what would we say is represented by inside the camp? Might it be our approach to salvation so often, which involves kind of cleaning ourselves up first and then believing we can go to God? Uh, maybe it's believing that, a, that behaving a certain way, being a good-mannered, respectful, polite Southern person, that that's what will endear us to God. Maybe speaking a certain way or doing certain things, whatever it is, inside the camp is where all the ways reign that we believe we can come right with, become right with God, but in fact are futile attempts at our own salvation. But the true gospel The gospel of faith alone in Christ alone is found outside the camp. That's where the way to God is permanently redefined. That's where Jesus suffered so that we could be forgiven for all of our sins. That's where Christ himself took on the very wrath of God so that we would not have to suffer it for our rebellion. And because of that, because of that single act that took place outside the camp, Worship was changed forever. No longer do we as Christians offer to God animal sacrifices through human priests. Now he desires something entirely different. So look at verse 15 again, and uh, we'll look at these four aspects here. Through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Now I want to just pause there. So through him... It's the person of Jesus Christ. Let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise. So because Jesus suffered, verse 12, in order to sanctify sanctify people through his own blood, worship must now be done continually through him. So here's this first aspect of biblical worship. Worship is ultimately a joyful and continual response to God's redemptive provision through Christ. Now, that means a lot, actually. It means a lot of things. Uh, First of all, it means you can't worship God except through Christ. True worship can only take place through Christ. Sometimes we will will commend, and we don't do this here, but we'll commend a worship leader, a worship pastor for, for sort of ushering us into the presence of God. Well, no worship leader can do that. We only have access to God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so our worship is ultimately this joyful and continual response to what God has done for us in Christ. Now, the second thing about that phrase, through Christ, means that except for Christ, none of us would actually ever worship God. So until God does a miraculous work in our hearts, through the power of the Holy Spirit, reconciling us to God, which is the work of Christ himself, Unless that happens, our hearts are never inclined to worship God. We don't desire that. And finally, the phrase through Christ means that everything that is done in worship is centered on Christ and His completed work. Christian worship is always Christ-centered. Now, in no place is this more evident uh, or more obvious than in Revelation 5. Chapter 4, God is presented as this awesome glorious, transcendent God before whom all creation hide their face. That's how glorious He is. 
And then the strong angel appears to challenge the universe. Who in the world, who in all of creation can actually approach this God? Who can come near this God? This glorious and majestic and transcendent and holy God. And no one in heaven and earth was found. And then the Lion of Judah enters. Jesus, the Lamb who was slain. And Jesus doesn't just approach the throne of this awesome God. He stands in the very center of it. He is one with God. And this sparks praise from every living creature. All those in heaven and above and below, myriads and myriads, thousands of thousands, praising Him with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and glory and honor and blessing. So because of this work of Jesus, Jesus purchased a people for God from every tongue, tribe, and nation, and that means that we that all worship must be centered on Him. Now, of course, we don't do that at the expense of the Father. We don't do that at the expense of the Holy Spirit. Certainly, true worship is Trinitarian. But remember, throughout the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit is always what? Pointing people to Christ. And even Christ, even though Christ submits to God the Father, the divine plan of the Father we see in John 5 and John 17 is that all should honor and glorify the Son. So when we praise Jesus, we are actually doing so to the glory of the Father. There's no inner Trinitarian jealousy or competition going on. Everything we do, we sing, we preach, we practice here at Capshaw must be designed to bring Christ praise. Which doesn't mean that we just say the name of Jesus over and over and over in all of our songs, but that every song and every sermon, every ordinance, every activity, every catechism must accentuate or celebrate some aspect of God's great salvation which centers on Jesus Christ. That's what worship is. It is ultimately a joyful and continual response to God's redemptive provision through Christ. And it actually should be easy for us, shouldn't it, to respond with joy when we think about what God has done for us in Christ. He snatched us, He rescued us from the pit, from death, and brought us alive, made us alive in Christ, brought us to Himself. He took us when we were strangers and enemies, and He established for us a place at the table and made us His very own sons and daughters. When we think about that it should actually rouse our emotions. Now, I'm not saying that worship should be strictly emotional, only emotional. Certainly, we want everything we do to combine serious thought and and joyful celebration. Rousing worship that moves us, the kind that we've uh, participated in this morning, and sermons of depth and truth. We want doctrine and devotion, precept and passion, Truth and love, adoration and action, which we'll see in a moment, all that works together in a beautiful way. Not, not long ago, toward the end of the summer, I, I went out for pizza with my wife, my, my two daughters, and a friend of one of my daughters. So there were, what does that make it, five of us? And uh, we went out and, and had a great time. And uh, when we were on the way home, uh, one of my, my youngest daughter said to me, Hey, Dad, um, one of my friends saw you in, in Publix in the grocery store uh, but was afraid to come up and say hi to you. And I said, well, 
Why was she afraid? And she said, oh, you just look so serious. I'm like, well, I mean, when I go to the grocery store, I'm not like, you know, clowning around and jumping out and scaring people and, you know, telling jokes and stuff. I have my list and I go get my things, then I leave. And uh, so, we were, so we continued to drive and I asked my, my daughter's friend who was in the back seat, I said, hey, and around, uh, you know, around us all the time, at our house all the time. And I said, hey, do I, do I, I'd like to know, like, do I strike you as, you know, overly serious or intimidating? And she goes, she started laughing. Uh, she said, no, I see how much of a goofball you are around your family that I don't know how anybody could be intimidated by you. And I thought, well, okay, I mean, I don't want to be overly serious and intense, but I'm not sure I'm going for the perpetual goofball either. Um, so, I mean, I think, you know, I don't want to be super intense. I don't want to be joyless, and neither should our worship be. You know, some people, when they worship, you, you would think you might ask the question, where's the joy? I mean, where's the joy in your worship? And for some people, you know, you might say, hey, we might say, we do realize we're worshiping the living God here. There should be an element of sobriety, and I know that I've, I'm sure I've veered off in, in, in either one of those, both of those ditches. But we want it to be, yeah, we want it to be rousing and emotional, but filled with depth and substance, and it all centers on Jesus Christ. So everything we do should be for God's glory and in response to His gracious provision in Christ, which means that everything we do is to worship Him. But there is a corporate aspect to our worship, something designed to take place together. This is why, look at verse 15 again, verse 15a, through Him let us, let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise. And let us, which is a, for you grammarians, it's called a hortatory address. It's, it's a command, but in a sort of inviting fashion. Let us appears over and over. This is our second point. Worship is a corporate exercise intended to be something in which the entire Christian assembly participates. So a sacrifice of praise, which is better stated, a sacrifice which consists of verbal praise, is the privilege and the responsibility of the believing community. So through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and His priestly meditation or mediation at the right hand of God, the community, the believing assembly, the faith family, enjoys unlimited access to God and unlimited opportunity to offer Him their collective praise. The Christian celebration of worship is always described as a response of praise to be enjoined by the whole assembly. Remember when God's people are, are enslaved to the Egyptians and God sends Moses with the word, and, and what does he say? Go tell them, let my people go so they can worship me. Now, sometimes it's translated serve me, but in other words, this is a corporate exercise. Let me say it this way. Corporate worship honors God when it is participative. And yet for so many churches, praise God, not ours, and I don't have any church in mind, so many churches, corporate worship has become instead a spectacle. A few people performing for the many. A select group of performers showing their skills while everybody else looks on in admiration. That's not biblical worship. New Testament scholar Don Carson says this, 
and don't shoot the messenger on this, uh, many churches are steeped in these traditions, drama, special performances, choirs, artistic dance, organ solos, though there is not so much as a hint of this practice in the New Testament. Now, I'm not saying if you have an organ solo or you have an artistic dance or whatever that, that you're doing something wrong or you've sinned against God, but I'm saying shouldn't our worship actually be consistent with what the Bible actually describes and prescribes? Those who have been redeemed, rescued, delivered, and upheld by God's own hand participate in worship together. Think about the Psalms, which was, you might say, the worship book for the nation of Israel. Psalm 95, come let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise. Psalms 96, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, O families of the peoples. Psalm 99, let all the peoples praise your great and awesome name, O Lord. Psalm 107, let the redeemed of the Lord, you get the communal aspect of this, say so, let them give thanks to the Lord. So it is to be enjoined by the whole assembly. So what does that mean? You may say, well, what does that mean for us? Well, you know, by God's grace, our worship is already very participative, participatory. I mean, you, you even as we were singing, I forget which song it was this morning, I was thinking, I can hear the voices. It's a beautiful thing, but we're going to continue to look at ways we can even in, in, involve more participation. So in our, in our call to worship in the mornings, uh, what you may see instead of just someone standing up reading a, a text of Scripture, which is wonderful, is it may be something from the Psalms that actually is a call and response. Because if participation is key, if participation is critical, then why don't we foster that? When we gather together. Well, let me look at, let's look at another aspect of this. The last part of verse 15b, which says, Let us through him continually offer up what? A sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So the phrase fruit of lips is actually a really weird, it's kind of an unusual metaphor. It, it literally reads, it comes from Hosea 14, and it literally means the calves of our lips. So what, what the writer is saying is it's a reference to sacrificial offerings and our lips are presented here as altars on which our hearts give worship to the Lord. So our lips are the altars upon which we should, verse 15, acknowledge His name. Now this is so, acknowledging the name of God is so rich in meaning, but it's something in the Western world we don't really consider or understand. In the ancient Near Eastern context, the person's name really represented who that person was. You might even say the essence of that person. And so when you talk about a person's name, you're talking about who they were at their very being. And in biblical thought, the name of God is a reflection of all that God is. All that God is, is in His name. Yahweh, I will be what I will be. You might even go a step further and say that when we acknowledge God's name, we are worshiping God for all that makes Him God. That's what to acknowledge His name means. We're saying, this is who you are, God, and there is none like you. My uh, daughter-in-law and granddaughter were in CVS the other day waiting in line, in the checkout line, when a man behind my daughter-in-law, my daughter-in-law's name is Emily, uh, leaned over and said to her about the little girl in her arms, uh, Oh, how old is he? He looks just like my grandson. 
Well, here's the, the pick of the two I'm talking about, just so you get an idea. Uh, well, Emily is, my daughter-in-law, is the kindest, most caring person in the world, I think. And she thought to herself when the guy said, oh, how, how old is he? He's so adorable. She thought, well, I'm probably never going to see this guy again. So what's the point in me correcting him? So she decided not to correct him. But the line wasn't moving. So this just kept going on and on. And so the guy said, oh, is he moving around a lot at home? What's he like at home? And then the guy said, I bet you're going to have your hands full with that one. He's all boy. And, of course, you know, she's sitting there. And, and you know how this is with somebody. The deeper you get into it, right, you realize, what am I going to say here? So the line didn't move. She got so deep in the conversation. My daughter-in-law is the only person in the world I think would ever do this. She got so deep in the conversation, she started referring to her own daughter as he. Because she didn't want, she didn't want to embarrass the guy. She says, yeah, he's a real handful, you know. And she, it, it, the guy was, you know. But anyway, so she got, so finally the line moves. She gets up to the front, and her daughter in her hand is very active and reaching for everything. And she said, now the guy's still behind. She said, girl, you're reaching out for everything you get your hand on. And the guy leaned over and said, did you just say girl? And she go, and she was so embarrassed, and, you know, she's, she never, ever wants anyone to feel uncomfortable. And she said, yeah, you know, I, I just didn't want to correct you. He said, why would you let me keep calling your daughter E? And, uh, and she said, I, I just felt so, I just didn't want to do And she said, no, this is my daughter, Peyton. And, you know, at that moment, it hit him. This is actually a beautiful little girl. Peyton is her name. And in her name, he saw, now, now don't take too much from this, but he saw something about her. And this is the way it is in the Scriptures. There's something about a name that is meant to really uh, embody or, or share or, or show what a person's essence is like. So it is with God's name. It represents who He is. So when we're called to acknowledge His name, it's to sing about and magnify all the attributes that make God God and no one else. The goal of our worship then is that God would receive the glory and honor for who He is, for what He has done in Christ. What's not important then is the, the, are the forms or the styles of worship. So that brings out our third point. Talk about acknowledging His name, rep, knowing who God is. Our greatest delight is not in the music, the songs, or even the worship itself but in the God that our worship exalts. And so what that means is we have freedom. It can be fast and slow. It can be old or new. It can be a brand newly penned song, or it can be a hymn from 500 years ago. It could be, you know, any number of styles. It could be, you know, country or there was a guy, I forget where I was, and didn't plan on telling the story, that's why I don't remember, but there was a guy who, oh, it was last Sunday over lunch with a couple of visiting. They said, we came from a church in South Dakota where the worship was polka, polka-style worship with an accordion and whatever. That, that sounds miserable to me, but, you know, people are worshiping God. So it doesn't matter. It's not the style. It's not the volume. It's not even the variety of instruments, although, praise God, we incorporate a large variety. We have some of the most skilled musicians around here. But our delight in, our joy is in the God that we worship. 
So that means, again, whether we have 10 instruments or none, 30 people on stage or one, whether music, music is contemporary or traditional, whatever it is, what's important is are we reflecting on, are we acknowledging the name, are we saying the right things about God and the salvation He provides in Christ? There is a temptation, I think, whenever we involve music to equate musical excellence with authentic worship, and the two are not the same. You can have very, very sophisticated mu- you know, music and not be worshiping God at all. Now, by contrast, you can have one person you know, clumsily strumming at the guitar, which we never have here, but you could have that and still worship God. There's a, now look at verse 16, and we're, we're winding this thing down here. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. There's a fascinating connection that the writer makes here. You cannot worship God only with words. In other words, if your actions contradict what your words say about God, you're not authentically worshiping. Our actions must provide legs, so to speak, to our verbal praises. So here's our final point. Through adoration and action, believers anticipate God's new creation. Now, here's what that means. When we get together as we have done this morning, we sing praises to God. We extol the perfections and the attributes and all the beauties of our God in Christ. We tell of His perfect character. We celebrate His mighty works. We we revel in and sing about His mighty salvation in Christ. We are actually anticipating a time when we will be with God and He will be with us and everything that's wrong with this world will be forever made right. And when we worship God by our actions, we are celebrating His mighty deeds of liberation. He did come, as He said, to set the captive free. And we are announcing by our humble efforts at restoration that we we want to do everything we can so that God's kingdom is here on earth, so that He is obeyed here on earth as Jesus instructed us to pray. In other words, we don't just worship God with our words. We show the world, if we show the world that we, we don't really care about them while still gathering to worship God with our words, then what we're saying to them is we don't acknowledge or we're not concerned about the suffering and the loneliness and the grief and the injustice and the despair and the isolation and all of those things that exist in a sin-cursed world. A world that Christ died to save. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the pastor and prisoner at one point, said this, Without action in the world, the adoration of God is empty and hypocritical and degenerates into irresponsible and godless quietism. In other words, if, if, as Christians we get together on the Lord's Day and we sing the praises of God, but when our neighbors are suffering, when uh, there are abortion vulnerable women who have no one to turn to, when there is uh, when there's oppression or hatred or violence or racism or whatever, any sort of thing that goes against God's design, if we ignore those things and act like we, they don't exist, then our praise is empty words. In fact, you go back, you look at the, the book of Amos, particularly Amos 5, when God says, away with your worship. Stop worshiping me, he says. Why? Because they had neglected to care for the least among them. 
We praise God because He is worthy. He alone is worthy of our adoration, our exaltation, and worship. But that worship of God culminates in a deep and profound compassion for the lost, for those who are hurting. And our worship of God compels us to be involved with those who are hurting in our world. And we're going to look at, these next few weeks, what actually God does in us and among us and for us when we gather. But back to my original question, what are we talking about when we talk about worship? Well, it's God's people coming together with great joy and conviction, praising God for who He is and for what He has done for us in Christ, and then being moved with gratitude for God's grace. Those same people love their neighbors, help those in need, serve the needy, proclaim the good news about Christ with humility, with joy, and with expectation that God will do far more than we even imagine. Let's pray.